Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. We all have a lot of things we can do in the days of our lives, and most of the things that matter very much to us are born of relationships, aren't they? Of people we come to think about and to care about and to love and to want to be more involved with who they are in the world, and that's clearly uh, why I'm here this weekend, so thank you very much. So, I thought, of course, you know, maybe I should, you know, think about the theology of work in light of, you know, the Ukraine and uh, about the Russian people and about Russia has a history and, you know, workers of the world unite and all that happened and didn't happen, of course, and all that. I chose not to do that substantially, but uh, you need, need to know that I'm not, you know, wanting to avoid that either, even though you've asked me to speak about a particular question today. But it is, of course, on the hearts of all of us who live in the world, have somehow a sense of the eyes of God upon us and wanting to see as God sees the world, to hear as God hears the world, even to feel as God feels the world. So. Thank you for your prayer, and we all pray with you about that. So. Probably 25 years ago, I was invited to speak at Rice University, and uh, I got off the plane in Houston and picked up by, by somebody and taken on the highways of Houston. And I grew up in California where freeways seemed to maybe have gotten their start in the world, I don't know, but it seemed that way. And, uh, but I was overwhelmed with the 26 lanes on the freeways of Houston, thinking, what on earth have I come into here? 26 lanes going one way, sheesh, really. And then I'm you know, looking and trying to make sense of where I am, and, and I see this pickup truck, pickup truck of course that it was, was driving past me on one of the lanes and right in the very back blazoned for me and for all of the all of history were these important uh, words. Tech, uh, American by birth, Texan by the grace of God. Uh, well, not all the highways of life have 26 lanes like Houston's, but most are more two lanes, aren't they? Crossing the miles of your life and mine. We can't even sing our songs of worship here this morning without the very first words we sang today being about pilgrims on the way, about a journey that we're on, about lead us out. I mean, we are people born of a sense of coming from someplace, going someplace. The best stories we all know, actually, are stories of highways, aren't they? Of journeys and pilgrimages from somewhere to somewhere. Growing up in California, but living in Virginia for the last 30 years, I've driven across America many times. And there's no traveling music like Stardust Memories. It's bluesy way so artfully brought into being by the great balladeer himself, Willie Nelson, poet laureate of Austin, the singer-songwriter of the Republic of Texas. <laughs> Where have you come from? Where are you going? Think with me, people. Because these questions run through every life, and they have and they will. Where have you come from and where are you going? From Ur of the Chaldees, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came to the land of the Canaan, on to Egypt, back with Moses, with Joshua, on the way to the Promised Land. A thousand years later, the Savior of the world appears, God incarnate, the Word made flesh in Jesus, whose invitation was to come and see. Not first of all, hey, read this book, or come listen to this lecture, but come and see. Come and along with me. Those early followers were the first pilgrims in history. 
people like us, pilgrims like us. But there are other stories too, of course. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the quest of the Holy Grail a thousand years later, Pilgrim's Progress 500 years later, Bilbo Baggins and the Hobbits several hundred years later, and the tales of Texas told by Larry McMurtry, from Comanche Moon to Dead Man's Walk to Lonesome Dove to the streets of Laredo. Taken together, there are thousands of pages in McMurtry's writing about this place and this people, each one a story of loves and longings, of ordered and disordered loves, of ordered and disordered lives. Do you remember one of Texas's best songs, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, <laughs> Urban Cowboy as it once was? It's the long story of Lonesome Dove, its four volumes beginning here in Austin in the 1840s, each book one more window into people who longed for love along the trails of Texas and beyond. On the highways of history, there are always one more story of pilgrimage, of a journey that begins and ends, that starts somewhere and stops somewhere. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Jesus himself, of course, was on his own journey. If you have scriptures, let me just draw you to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil was already put into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God, and it was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel tied around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm going to do you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Well, the story goes on. But it's these, verse, these words especially that I want us to think about this morning together. Because he'd come from God and was going back to God. Because he'd come from God and was going back to God. I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. And therefore, I humble myself before you on my knees. Pe Peter, yes, Peter, I will wash your feet. As the letter to the Philippians puts it, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, was obedient to the point of the cross. The very heart of redemptive history is a story of vocation, of one called to give himself away for the sake of God and the world offering himself to others and for others so that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unless we know who we are and why we are, we'll never know what is ours to do in this life. Again, vocation is a good word, but it's a deep, deep word, a complex word, a word for the whole of life, for our labor, for our learning, for our love. The story of Jesus has meaning within the deeper, longer story of God at work in the world, from the story from creation to consummation. But let me explain, my friends. Texas is a place for blue bonnets and yellow roses, but it's that, but 
Of course, it's more than that, as you know. Here in Austin, even, there's an American artist who is seen by his peers as maybe the best at what he does in the whole world. His name is Terrence Malick, and he makes movies every few years, and when he takes his films to the Cannes Festival, in that sort of strange place in the south of France that we all, the rest of us, like to say, it must be Cannes, shouldn't it be? C-A-N-N-E-S, and they say, no, no, it's Cannes, you know? And I think, oh, give me a break, really, I, you know? But anyway, he takes his films to places like this, which is the most curated film festival in the world, Brings it, gets on the airport, out of the airport here in Austin, goes to France, and what do his peers all over the world say to him? Terrence Malick, when you come, of course, you bring the best movie in the world, don't you? So we're going to give you this year, again, the gold medal, because your film, you see your story, your cinematic imagination at work here, it's the best film done in the whole world this year. I'm speaking about a film called The Tree of Life, which came out about 10 years ago. The Tree of Life, set in Waco. It isn't named to be that, but it's set in Waco. And it's a story um, of what I would say, offer you a big, 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 big word, which we don't have to ever use again in life. But it's a word that I'm going to offer you at least once today. It's, it's the word meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. And meta-narrative is actually the idea that there's a whole story for all of life and all of us. It's like the, the big story of everything in history and the world meta-narrative. The Tree of Life is that kind of a film. It's like, what are you doing? What's this about? And, you know, he doesn't name the story. He doesn't sort of divide it up. But it's a story of actually all of history, of the whole of reality. The first part of the story is like, what have you done here? What are you saying here? It's a story of creation, of the way the world was meant to be, the way the world was at the very beginning. He doesn't name it, but that's what he's done in those first minutes of the story. And then all of a sudden we're drawn into something sort of heart-aching and heartbreaking and finally, you know, terrorizing in its own way. It's a story of what Christians call the fall, of what happened. What happened? Why is it a mess? Why have things happened the way that they've happened? The third chapter of the story is a story of redemption. Um, things beginning to slowly, slowly begin to come back to be as they should have been at the very beginning, actually. The final chapter of the story that he tells in the Tree of Life, Tree of Life, of course, is quite an evocative image, isn't it, for people who are born of the Hebrew and Christian vision of life in the world, Tree of Life. But the very last chapter of the film is a story of the consummation of somehow, someday, somewhere, in fact, this will all be made well again. As Tolkien has Gandalf say, um, when all sad things finally become untrue. And you see, somehow Terrence Malick, somehow buried away here in Austin, Texas, you know, imagines and imagines and creates and creates and finally edits and edits and brings to get into the world a story about what? About actually everything in history from beginning to end. It's beginning and it's end. Where have you come from? Where are you going? It's a story of, in fact, everything in the world. The film, more recently done, called The Hidden Life, as Malik says also, um, it's not a grand story of grand, big, big cosmic things. It's actually a story of one man's life. He's married. He has some daughters. Lives in a little pristine little farm in a hard-working, hard-working moment in history in the early 1940s in Austria. I won't ruin the story for you other than to say that it is a story of one man's life. So if you could hold in your minds today with me these two words. I won't insist you memorize them or say them ever again to anybody you like in the world. But meta-narrative and narrative. That somehow all of us 
all of us, whether we're Hindus, whether we're secular materialists, whether we're Jews, whether we're Christians, everybody in the world somehow lives between the sense of everything is about this. It could be secular Western materialism. It's everything is time plus chance plus matter, and that's it, really. Or it could be, you know, Hinduist, Hindu, Hindu or Buddhist, and some version of a pantheistic world and worldview of, I'm working through this life for the next life, and the next life, finally hoping someday to be so fully enlightened that in fact I see everything as it, as it, as it really is in the world. Um, everybody, everybody, I'm just saying to you, walking through the streets of Austin, walking through the airport here in Austin, walking wherever you go in the world, everybody in some ways lives in the tension between, I think the whole of life is about this, and my life is about this, actually. My life is about this. And Terence Malick, I would say, is as gifted a storyteller about that dynamic as anybody I know about. And he lives here in Austin, Texas. You see, what Malick has done in those two films, he's told the story of scripture, hasn't he? The story of life, of your life and my life, of life for everyone everywhere. He's told the story of what ought to be, of what is, of what could be, of what someday will be. Four chapters, ought, is, can, and will. Work as it was supposed to be at the very beginning of time. Work as it was meant to be, of good work, of holy and honest work to the glory of God. Of work as it is in a wounded world. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Work as it could be, as it should be as it sometimes is with cr true creativity and responsibility, the kind of work we all long for. And work as it someday will be, you see, because, dear brothers and sisters, we're on a pilgrimage from here to there, living in the now but not yet of history, praying for, hoping for, living for a new heaven and a new earth, where there will be good work to be done, the best work to be done, with work that is the most you to be done forever and ever. That's Malik's story, The Tree of Life, but more crucially, it's a story of all stories, whether we like it or not, whether we want it to be or not, whether we believe in it or not. In the words of the great American poet and essayist Wendell Berry, it is reality, because it's the kingdom of God. But you see, we stumble over this, don't we? Seeing through a glass darkly as we do, and Christians, too, stumble over this. Not only all of us in the world, but Christians, too, stumble over this. You see, if we're going to develop a theology of work, a way to understand work as God understands work, we're going to have to be people who can make sense of what I would call common grace and common good. Common grace and common good. It's hard to drive very far on a street here in Austin, Texas, or, you know, you can pick your town across the great state of Texas and not come across what? An H-E-B store. <laughs> But do you know where the store comes from? Family moved to Texas about 1905. Mr. Unfortunately named Butt. Um, he had tuberculosis. They moved to Kerrville, hoping for drier air than where they'd known in the southeast. And, but he was sick, and his wife had to figure out somehow to keep the family. And so she began to sell bread and milk and probably not very many bananas, but we had to sell a little bit of staple groceries, you know, out of her living room in Kerrville, Texas. She was industrious. She was entrepreneurial. She had a good idea, and she was willing to keep at it and work at it and work at it again and again and again and again. And, and then, you know, the little living room, you know, store she had on the streets of, of Kerrville began to grow into this and then into this and then to this and then, you know, 
and it's the tenth, I think it's the tenth largest private corporation in America today, um, HEB. Um, but about, you know, in the next generation, there was a, you know, first there was a Howard E. Butt Sr., the son of this couple who moved to Kerrville. Then he had a family, and he had a HEB himself, Howard E. Butt Jr., who goes off to one of your glorious universities here in Texas, and somehow, you know, in those years of an undergraduate study, he becomes friends with Billy Graham. And he and Billy Graham have a common gift. They both were evangelists, as they saw themselves to be. And Howard Butt is, you know, drawn into the work of his friend Billy, and they begin to do crusades together here and there. And intention, though, with all this is that H.E.B. Sr. always thought H.E.B. Jr. was going to take up the family business when it came to his time in, in life. But what about, what are you doing with Billy Graham? You're off to do what now? But I always wanted you to come to work with me. That was the whole point of H.E.B. Jr. that you are. Really. For the next 10 years of his life, Howard Butt would describe as being a great, great crisis that he could not resolve between what he might have said as my father in heaven calling me, my father on earth calling me. And what is the call of God upon my life? In the unfolding of H.E.B.'s business practices and expansion in Texas by about, you know, 70 years ago, I guess, they decided they had some money to be philanthropic with, and they decided to buy a ranch in the hill country west of San Antonio, west of Kerrville, and they wanted to build a camp for kids who couldn't afford to go to camp here in Texas, and they called it the free camp. Maybe some of you have gone to those camps along the way of your life, the free camp, but they built one, and then another one, and then another one. There are probably five there now along the Rio Frio uh, there in the hill country. And, but they, I wasn't part of the conversation, as you know, but I imagine some, someday, somewhere along the way, Howard Jr. talking to mom and dad, they said, we'd like to be able to give you a certain part of this land, and you can do with what, what you want to do with it. You see, he was wrestling through his own sense of vocation and of work in the world. Is there sacred work to be done? Is it secular work to be done? Is there work that God loves and honors? Is there work that he just allows to happen so that they can support people who are doing really good work in the world, holy work in the world? How does this work out, O oh Lord? Howard Butt's own crisis of faith was, was about that. He built the Laity Lodge, of all places, uh, which is really the origin of my being with you this, week, this morning. A place for people to come and think through these great, great questions of who is God, of who am I, of where I come from, where am I going, of who am I and why am I and what am I going to do with my life then? Lady Lodge has been that kind of a place for over 60 years, really. Well, here's a question for you. When you go to HEB stores in Austin or Central Markets, maybe you prefer the Central Market version instead, um, is it a, do they sell Christian groceries there? Is that what we're trying to do when we enter into the marketplace as Christians? Are we to do Christian things? Is the bread, the milk, the bananas, are they Christian bananas? Or are they just secular bananas? Are they just worldly bananas? Yeah. Do you have a special aisle that you know about alone, perhaps? Maybe you and your buddies, and you think they actually sell holy food on this aisle. You know, and the rest of it's just for like regular Texans. Last winter, when you had that terrible ice storm that ran through the state and paralyzed the state, you know, along the way, that week that it was you know, paralyzing you, the New York Times, which you may or may not want to read in this life, but it had a top-of-the-fold story about HEB 
and about how it responded to the ice crisis, the snow crisis, the cold here in Texas. They talked about, you know, the loudspeaker all of a sudden hearing, you know, I know you're in here with your grocery carts full of groceries and, you know, walk out of the store and put your grocery in your car and then come back someday and we'll just, you know, we'll figure out what happened today, you know. An unusual response for a store like HEB, but of course not so much because if you know the store and you know the history, it's kind of melded together with Texas actually. A lawyer here in Austin was recorded was reported in the New York Times top of the fold story saying HEB is the moral center of Texas. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? <laughs> the moral center of Texas. I had breakfast yesterday morning with two friends of mine. I met them when they were in their early 20s. They're no longer that. They're you know, probably more into their mid-40s. But they, they had some ideas. They both went to Texas A&M, and they were good buddies. And they thought about this, thought about this. They talked and talked and thought and thought. And I began to be Uncle Steve for them, as they called me. And, uh, and then you know, they began to have this idea for a different way to actually build houses here in, in Austin, Texas. And uh, they bought a or least, I suppose it must have been, a former Borders bookstore kind of in the south part of the city here, and, uh, next to a big, huge central market. Um, and they called it Treehouse. Treehouse. Maybe you bought, you know, hammers there or something, or nails or something like that. Um, and it was a really, really good idea. My wife, Meg, and I actually flew into Austin to be part of that opening weekend with them because we were so committed to who they are and what they were wanting to do. And it was a really good idea. They moved the idea eventually to Dallas, the two stores there, and then some things happened in, in the world. And, you know, what they're doing now has been reported in the papers of the world all over the last week or so. But it's called Icon Homes. Maybe you've seen some of the stories of these 3D printed homes that they're making. You think, what did you just say, 3D printed homes? Like, I have to confess, I have a hard time getting that, my mind around that, 3D printed homes. But just go online if you haven't seen these stories yourself this, this past week or, or, or more. But my friends Evan and Jason are behind this project, and their neighbors live next door to each other is kind of out near Barton, Barton Creek. Is it Barton Creek, I guess? Somewhere around there, really. Um, but they're my dear friends, really, and I love them, and I love their families. I love their children and their wives. And, and you see, my question to you is, are they making Christian homes? Is that the hope here? Is that the requirement? Imaginative, yes. Entrepreneurial, yes. 3D technology, what did you say? You see, the founders, my dear friends, would be here at home at the tribe with you, um, except they have their own tribes here in Austin to be part of on Sunday morning. But the people who actually are Trinitarian Christian people, people who love Jesus with heart and mind and soul and strength, and, and, but they don't suffer from what I would call a dualism. They don't suffer from a sacred-secular split. They see actually their work as being holy unto the Lord. My question to you about Terrence Malick's films, his movies, are they Christian movies? What is a Christian movie anyway? You see, if Malick is seen by his peers as peerless, as the best filmmaker in the world, lives here in Austin with you, maybe buys you know, bananas next to you in the grocery store, I don't know really. Um, but you see, the question is, I mean, when somebody who is a serious lover of God goes to work in the world, is the point to make parochially Christian products? to do a Christian thing? What is it that actually justifies or makes sense of one's work in the world? If I'm a financial analyst, do I only account for Christian money? No. Is it a Christian you know, savings and loan I enter into? I'm not wanting to be silly with you people about this. I'm just wanting you to think through where have you come from and where you're going? You know, what is the story behind this, your life? What's the big story? 
Is it a story, in fact, that can make sense of all of history and all of reality? What criteria will we use? What lens? What is good work, anyway? What is godly work? What is holy work to the glory of God alone? SDG, as Johann Sebastian Bach initialed at the bottom of each page. It's a beautiful Hebrew word called avodah. And avodah in the Hebrew scriptures actually is a word that can be honestly, honestly used to describe both worship and work. Avad in Hebrew in the early chapters of Genesis is, you know, six days you shall work and do all. It's the word for work, really. But then there are places in the same book of Genesis where avodah is actually describing the worship of God's people. You think, so what, is this just a mix-up? Did they get the wrong word here? I don't think so. I think God intended for us to see, in fact, worship and work to be more seamless. It is that we don't sometimes come to a place like this on Sunday morning and gather together and sing songs of praise to God. But you see, in God's own view of life in his world, it was to be more coherent, more seamless, more of one. There's a sacramental character to all of life because you see, we are praying, aren't we? Your kingdom come. I want to leave you with one image and with two words. The image is the image of a signpost a signpost. I'm inviting you into a holy rhythm this morning, a holy rhythm that makes sense of who you are and of why you are, what you do with your life. No dualisms, no sacred secular split running through your hearts, but a vision of a more seamless life. If we had time to do all these things, we would take more time, but let me just note in passing that the wonderful conclusion to Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah is one of the hard books of the Bible to read, I would say. It's like, it's like Ukraine this week, and you think, God in heaven, there's too much of, a, of horror here, too much terror, too much push and shove, and people getting killed, and people being bullies, and, you know, and injustice. It's just not the story you want to read, actually. It's in the Bible. It's the first, basically, the, most of the book of the prophecy of Zechariah. And then the very last chapter begins to sort of say, okay, 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 the world is like that. The worst is yet to come, as Kristen said to us this morning. I mean, there's a lot of worse in this world, really. And then before the chapter, before the prophecy is all over, Zechariah says this, but there will be a day, you see, we won't be like this anymore. And then he says, you see, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord in that day. Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. You know, is there a more ordinary or more useful kitchen utensil than a cooking pot? Every home and every place, the most fancy pants condo in Houston, to the most humble made from clay outdoor over a fire meal in western Kenya, God chooses that to give us a window into the character of the kingdom, and therefore why we should see even our cooking pots as sacramental signposts of the kingdom coming. Yes, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord. So just imagine yourselves going off into the work of the world on Monday morning. You know, could you imagine somehow, some way, for in fact, holy to the Lord be upon your life tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday? That somehow the work of being butcher, baker, candlestick maker, somehow holy to the Lord? Because you see, someday, someday, even this most ordinary thing in all of life, the whole world, will be called holy to the Lord. So why is it and how is it, in fact, what you do with your life, ordinary as it is, wouldn't be seen by God himself as being holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. The two words are these words, ora e labora. 
I don't speak Latin, probably you don't either, but ora e labora is to pray and to work. O-R-A space E-T at ora a and then labora, like labor. Not so hard for us. If the Lady Lodge, which is the place you ought to know more about because it's why I'm with you here today in many ways, it's an unusual place in, in the world, I, I, I would argue. But the very heart of its vision for 60 years now has been somehow to be a place to come reflect again, to think through one more time about the relation of aura a labora, of praying and working. We may not, any of us, be Celtic, you know, you know, people interested in Celtic, you know, this or that, or I don't know, really, I'm more that way in my history than most places, but I've been quite drawn to this image of the Celtic world, what they call a thin place, a thin place. A thin place is a place where you actually feel like heaven and earth are touching each other. You think, oh, you know, it's not magic, they didn't throw magic dust in the air, but like something about this actually is, it feels like I'm see into things I don't typically see into in my life. Christian, I've been talking about the idea of vocation for some months now, and of work, particularly, over these last, last half of a year. And he asked me to reflect with you today about that, offering a theology of work. Much could be said that I've not said today. But for today and for this week, I want to be sure to acknowledge the news of the world this week. It was, you know, 160 years ago, I suppose, that Marx began to say to the world, workers of the world unite. All you have to lose are your chains. And this week in the world, one more act of revolutionary violence inspired by the Marxist-Leninist vision. The tragic irony being that, one, that, it, being that it is only in the building of walls that keeps its people in, chaining them to the communist ideology because free people had never chosen it. Marx and his successors misread the human heart profoundly, misunderstanding what it means to be a human being in history, and much more could be said. At the retreat last summer, Christian and Deb were at, in the shadow of HEB's own life and labor. It is a quiet place. It is a thin place, a place to begin to see, in fact, somehow where heaven and earth touch each other and begin to see all of life, all of my loves, all of my longings, all of my learning, all of my labor, somehow meeting along the Rio Frio in the hill country of Texas. Dear brothers and sisters, it's only when we know where we've come from and where we are going that we can know what our lives are to be about. Yes, that we can know the meaning of our work and of our worship seamless lives to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen.